Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire, who promises not to give any more insight into Suella Braverman's excitement levels. <laughs> Sorry about that. It's all right. Caused quite the stir, Kieran. <laughs> I was still chuckling. Uh, I, Ali's up in Birmingham at the moment, and I spoke to her about three hours later on the phone. And she said, "What are you chuckling at?" And eventually, I told her, and she went, "Oh my god, you're both in your fifties." Uh, which I've, I've redacted the actual age we are. For, yes. uh, <laughs> it's it's Newsday, Kieran. But we have an interview today. We have an interview with. Uh, Gareth Coates, who we spoke to last year about the finances of schools football, uh, the most grassroots football of all, um, we had uh, an update from him that we bring to you at the end of the show. It's not particularly cheery, but it's interesting and it's very, very worth a listen. Uh, in the meantime, Kieran, some big news stories about things that we've been discussing and have been bubbling under and listeners won't be surprised to learn that the first one is Wigan. Yes, um, Wigan have failed to pay wages on four occasions over the course of the last year. Uh, This is following the acquisition of the club uh, when it came out of administration. So we always take the view, and I understand it as fans, that new equals better. Yeah. And it doesn't. It means different. Mm. Uh, And as, as a consequence of that, the EFL who have upped their game for quite a uh, you know certainly for a couple of years now since uh, since Trevor Birch uh, took over as as chief exec uh, they laid down the law they said that you have a suspended sentence if you fail to pay the wages on time then there is a suspended 3 points penalty that has now been activated Wigan are at the wrong end of the championship mm. and this could be the difference between Staying up and going down, uh, and that's that's a real shame. And it's happening too often. Derby County, Sheffield Wednesday have both suffered similar fates in recent years. There is a threat over Reading. Uh, Paul Ince, I think, has been quoted as saying that he believes that D Day will be today, i.e., Thursday. Wow. Um, and the reason why he, perhaps he believes that is that today, uh, Thursday is the deadline by which if clubs go into administration, the points deduction is applied this season as opposed to next season. But that is impacted by relegation as well. Mm. Um, So it's not good for fans of Wigan. It's made a tough job even harder. Looking at the most recent comments from Sean Maloney, the manager, I got the impression that they were still awaiting wages. Yeah. So this is not a cash flow, a short liquidity issue. It's nothing to do with the Queen's Jubilee or foreign banks or some of the other excuses. And I think the problem that Wigan now have is that 
their credibility, or rather the credibility of the people making the comments, is shot to pieces. Because if you come up with a, a fairly lame excuse and then the same issue is repeated again and you come up with a different excuse and another different excuse, people begin to go, well, I don't think we're getting the we're not really getting the full story here. So it's a mess. Wigan lost seven million pounds in getting promoted from the championship to sorry, from League One to the championship. And if they are relegated, the gap between the championship and League One, which is significant because in the championship, you get 80% of the money from the EFL TV deal and 80% of the solidarity payments, that, uh, that's going to be lost. That goes down to 12%. So it's, it's a very significant financial impact, probably in the region of seven to £8 million pounds is, is the uh, fall in money. And you've got fewer of the big teams in League One, although you know, there still are you know, Derby, Sheffield Wednesday, Ipswich, Portsmouth. Yeah, there's plenty of, of big hitters in that division as well. Sorry, Kim, did you say they lost £7 million being promoted? Yes, yes. So that was in 21-22. And again, it's part of the insanity of football. How did that but happen? Um, wages, I think wages were £157 for every £100 of income. And right. then you've got the day-to-day overheads. Uh and it and it very quickly mounts up. Uh, oh, it's yeah. uh, it, it's it's a it's an industry, which if I was looking at it from the perspective of a business school, I would say to anybody just just avoid the the risks are high, um, the rewards are fairly modest unless you you do get it right and unless you're able to persuade another idiot to take the club off you for a much higher fee. And that's what the Glazers are trying to do in the case of Manchester United. Uh, they, because Manchester United hasn't made money under the Glazers, but they are still hoping to get at least five billion. You know, they're, they're aiming for six. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the bigger fool theory is, uh, is, is in evidence in, in the football industry. Well, the one consolation with the dreadful financial situation of football, Kieran, is it has enabled us to do two pods a week uh, to a baffled audience of millions of middle-aged people. Um, two questions, Kieran, on the back. What well, statements, really, are rather on the back of the Wigan thing. First of all, the, the chances are they will get relegated. So mm. they'll be losing players, I imagine. They're going to have a real hard job to replace them. Who, who, who in their right mind... Which player and which agent is going to say, yeah, let's go to Wigan. We've had a good offer from them. You know, Wigan can offer them as much as they want in wages. If you're not going to get paid it once every three months, why would you take that risk? And the second thing, and I'm not the first person to to say this, and, and it, we have discussed the fact that the EFL are taking a, a firmer approach, but it was it took four times for wages not to be paid before – there was a punishment, and like this, you know, the first time we all have cash flow problems at at, at 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 some stage. Once, fine, you can put that down to bad luck. For it to happen four times, Kieran, before any punishment, that that doesn't seem as tough as we think the EFL have been recently, does it? I, I think that's a valid observation, um, and I think the problem for the EFL is that they are always looking in the rearview mirror in the sense that yeah. until matters are brought to their attention, yeah. that they can't necessarily do things. However, um, it does now appear that 
what they are aiming to do is to have what I've referred to as real-time monitoring. Well, not my people refer to as real-time monitoring of club affairs. So therefore, you instantly know when wages have not been paid. And when we had Mark from uh, the, National um, the, the National League, yeah. he says that's what they do. And Neil Doncaster of the, of the SPFL, he says that's what they do as well. And it's actually a, a relatively easy uh policy to adopt you've got to get the clubs to buy into it so therefore they've got to vote for it i guess um and it instantly tells you whether or not some of the the key costs are being paid and in the case of football we all know that the the single biggest expense is that of uh, payroll and therefore if payroll doesn't go through if payments to hmrc don't go through then you can quickly uh, send in the the people who are whose job it is to investigate, and again, the EFL they have beefed up their their sort of squad of investigative staff who are monitoring the the finances of clubs. And the problem they've got is that I think they'd like to extend this even further, but it's got to be approved by clubs because remember, mm. ev- every pound that you're spending on a financial review panel is a pound which isn't being distributed to clubs. Therefore, it's not going into transfer budgets. It's not going into wages for the players. And if you talk to fans, what do they want most of all? They want more money spent on players and more money spent yeah, on yeah. transfers. Uh, we know, Kieran, that the words white paper have replaced the words independent regulator at the top of the price of football bingo chart. <laughs> uh, so let's get white paper out of the way. Now, is there anything in the in the white paper about real-time monitoring at all levels of football? Because it seems to me, it's like the scales fell from my eyes when Mark Ives told us that they, they have a monthly update from every club so they can keep an eye on, on situations as they are developing. It seems to be the most simple and obvious way of preventing things like this happen. So is it is it likely that the EFL and the Premier League would adopt it? Well, we, we don't know exactly what the EFL and the Premier League do at present, but certainly this is one thing which would be very easy for the, the independent regulator to, to put into operation. Um, for the sake of transparency, I think you know, I've said I've popped up to somewhere near Parliament on a, on a few occasions over the last 18 months and Given my background, which is an insolvency background, and insolvency is all to do with managing cash, I, I sort of bang that particular drum, and I'm sure other people do as well, of course. Um, so I would expect that to be one of the tools which would be used by the regulator. It wouldn't be enshrined in legislation as such, but the the regulator's powers, I suspect, will be fairly broad and fairly deep, um, and it would allow them to do what they consider to be appropriate. So this, this is certainly one way. If you've got any business which has got stresses in relation to cash management, you monitor cash coming both in and out of the business on a on a daily or weekly basis mm. to ensure that there are no gremlins. And also, you look to see uh, your list of creditors as to when payments are due and, and you you build, and it's it's dull stuff. You, you, you do budgets and you do cash flow forecasts. This is what any sane business should be doing, but football's not a sane business. Yeah, Ali would say it's what any sane sole trader should be doing as well, but, you know, that's for a different pod. Can we just clarify as well, Kieran, that when you say you pop up to somewhere near Parliament, you do actually mean <laughs> you do actually mean Parliament because, you know, Soho's near Parliament, you know. There's plenty of places in town that are near Parliament. You mean Parliament, Kieran. Um, and talking of the EFL's newfound strength and maturity, 
uh, they're having a grown-up conversation with the Premier League, hopefully. Yes, and it, it, it would appear, and this is a, a story which has come through, I think, a few news sources, but it's been most recently uh, on, on Sky News, um, that post the white paper, mm. and I can assure you that had the had there not been a change in Prime Minister uh, and Rishi Sunak taking over from List Trust, this would not be the case. This would not have proceeded because the, the, the Trust administration was very opposed to the idea of a football regulator. Mm. But post the white paper, the, the Premier League, which for some reason hadn't been answering calls or putting them onto from the EFL to say, uh, you know, this meeting we're supposed to be having, you know, we're supposed to be get, you know, the offer you've been talking about. Um, and um, the Premier League has now effectively made two offers, the first of which was uh, to increase uh, the distribution of monies from Premier League TV deals by £90 million dropping down into the EFL. I believe that has now gone up to around about £125 million. And Now, that is half of what the EFL are asking for. Um, that will have strings attached because the concern from the Premier League, which does have some validity because when, uh, when the Premier League agreed to give a percentage of its TV monies uh, to the EFL in the form of solidarity payments and then the Premier League TV deals in both 2014 and 2017 rocketed up um, all of the additional money that was given um, via that particular route went straight through into wages so the Premier League saying well you know if we are willing to give up some of our money but you've got to show the ability to manage that money and and historically that's not been the case in the championship um, so I think the Premier League will have strings attached. It will say, well, that money has to be allocated for infrastructure projects. If we see wages going up, we will not be very happy. Um, so it's it's halfway there. I think we will also see a change in the way that the EFL distributes money, uh, because at present it's effectively a, a flat fee split between the 24 teams in each division. There is talk, at least in the championship, of that being allocated on a place-by-place basis, although there's a downside to that because it it reinforces existing gaps between clubs. Um, So those appear to be broad positives. Mm. But you then say to yourself, okay, the Premier League is being more generous. um, And I I can understand, you know, know, about some of Steve Parrish's comments. Steve Parrish says, well, you know, I'm, I'm a wealthy man by the standards of of the average person, but I'm effectively now giving money to Stoke City who are owned by Bet365. And the people at Bet365 earn factors of tens or hundreds of of Steve Parrish's wealth. So so why am I giving people money to people who are far richer than myself? And you can understand that. Um, So we'll have to see the the, the details there. Um, But if the Premier League is giving more money to the EFL, what else does the Premier League give money to? Well, it gives money to grassroots football in the form of the Football Foundation. Now, the fear of the FA, and this is one of the stories which has popped up in one of the newspapers in the last 24 hours or so, is what happens to that commitment to the Football Foundation? Could it mean that we end up with more money going into the professional game in the lower leagues and less money 
therefore goes to grassroots football. So I think the FA is is very concerned that they could be marginalised here um, and they could effectively be uh, indirectly uh, paying for some of the additional money going to clubs in the championship. Uh, let's not talk about Steve Parrish at the moment, Kieran. His, his, his ears will be burning enough as it is, to be perfectly honest. He won't be able to put a hat on for a couple of days yet, I imagine. Uh, those of us, Kieran, um, who like the idea of an independent regulator will say, see, it's already working because just a mere hint that there may be one in the white paper has got two people talking who haven't talked previously, and that's how the regulator hopefully will work. The regulator won't need to get involved if people are sorting things out like grown-ups. But th- there is one thing that intrigues me a little bit, Kieran. Um, I, you know, some news outlets are using the word negotiate between the mm. Premier League and the EFL. And what I find slightly odd about that is that the EFL have really got nothing to negotiate with, have they? It's, it seems it, it's it's all down to the Premier League to make concessions. Is that right? I think that's absolutely fair assessment. The The Premier League hold all of the cards mm. in relation to this in the sense that it's the TV deal which they negotiate with their broadcast partners. Um, and again, you know, I, I've used this analogy before, but the EFL had the opportunity in 1992 to have a joint deal with the Premier League yeah. in which they were offered 25%. And they turned it down. Now, you could argue that they they made a mistake then, and they they have to suck it up. And, and indeed, they've they've had to. Part of the problem in in football, if you take a look at the comments which are coming, not just from the EFL, but also from Tebas at La Liga, also from the Bundesliga, also some of, of people in, in in connection with Serie A as well is that nobody expected the Premier League to be as successful as it has been. Revenue has increased by 2,600% in 30 years. That is an incredible achievement. Mm. The EFL the EFL has done well, but it's not by 2,600%. It, you know, by the, compared to you know, an average, you know, compared to you know, the automobile industry or uh, you know, the the water industry or whatever you're going to say, the EFL has has, has grown um, and it has been successful and crowds have increased and it has got good sponsorship deals. But the level of growth has simply been way behind that of the Premier League and therefore the gap has grown and grown and grown. Um, and you know, with hindsight, and we, we all say with hindsight, things could have been so much better, the EFL should have said yes in 1992. It chose not to do so and it's been paying the price ever since. Water industry is doing all right. I watched I watched Paul Whitehouse's brilliant documentary. Oh, they're, oh they're, God, that was that was wonderful and depressing uh, in equal measure. Yeah, they're, they're making a shed load of money. The water industry is mm. out of pouring shit into our rivers and oceans. That's a brilliant business plan. Um, this next question, the uh, story, Kieran, rather, uh, it, it's a shame it didn't happen a week or two ago because we could have put it to Mark Ives. But uh, some interesting news for players in the non-league. Yes, this is very disturbing um an email which has come to me um yeah as we know we we know some players we yeah. know some players at different forms of the the ground uh, there are changes to contracts for players in the national league um under the current position if a player is injured playing football in the national league then the player continues to be paid 
But under the new contract, you will only get your full wages for 12 weeks if you're a National League player Mm. or for six weeks if you're below the National League, National Division, i.e. the National League South or National League North. Um, And if you're still injured, then you drop down to statutory sick pay. Now, statutory sick pay is £99.35 per week. Mm. Now, we are talking about an industry which is involving elite athletes. We are talking about an industry which is a contact sport. And we are talking about an industry in which it is not unusual for players to have long-term injuries. Nobody, nobody goes into a tackle with the intention of being injured. Mm. Nobody uh, work, you know, is, is putting 100%, chasing that ball in, in the 93rd minute of a game with the thought that, oh, my hamstring could go. But you know, that, that is always a risk as far as um, as far as the game is concerned. And that risk is is borne by the athlete in, in terms of you know, they can't play in the remaining matches, but they've always had that safety net knowing that if I, if I try to win that ball and, it, you know, and something bad happens, I've got the security of a, a contract which lasts me until, and I think we've, we've said in the past, isn't it, it's the 30th of April yeah. in the National League when they, they tend to have 10-month contracts. This, for me, is very disturbing because it is making things difficult for players. Um, what also will be the case is if, uh, if, if a player signs one of these new contracts, the contract can be terminated with three months' notice if in the opinion of a club-instructed inst- club medic, so not an independent doctor, the player is unable through injury or illness to play for a period of four months. Mm. So in, in what is a precarious career, because the average length of a uh, career of a professional footballer is seven years, and, and people say, well, hold on, you know, such and such has played for 15 years and 20 years and so on. But, yeah, I'd, I'd point them to, to Enoch and Wepu, who Brighton yeah, signed yeah, yeah, yeah. 15 months ago, who, yeah, yeah. who has had to retire at the age of 24. Yeah, um, And there are other players who simply... They, they drop out of the game at, at a much earlier stage, but we don't get to hear about them because they don't tend to be high profile. Um, this this is the National League where the wages are not big to begin with. We hear about the stories of how much Wrexham are playing, but Wrexham are outliers. Yeah. So I find this very worrying indeed. I appreciate that clubs are losing money in the National League, but at the same time, this is not looking after their staff and the players have to I mean to be fair the players have to opt in to these contracts but of course the threat is if you don't opt in to the contract then you don't get offered the contract in the first place yeah if if mark ives the general manager of the national league is listening to this and he is so i know he does i'd be really interested in a response because I'm quite baffled by this story, Keir. I mean, first of all, 30, 40 years ago, it wouldn't have been an issue because 30, 40 years ago, players in the Southern League or the Northern Premier League at most were semi-professional, and even that was unusual. They would they would have had a day job, most of them, and, and played football midweek and, and Saturday for their non-league club. And they probably would have been glad to get statutory sick pay if they were injured. But now they're all professional, Keir, and they're professional athletes. 
on professional contracts. But what baffles me most um, with my ex-human resources hat on is that you you can't make major changes like this to a contract system. And the, the contract system in this country is all over the place. But you can't make major changes to contracts without negotiation and consultation. And this seems to have come out of nowhere absolutely without negotiation or consultation. So again, if if any of our legal friends are listening to this, I'd be really interested to hear what they've got to say as well, because you know, we, we always try and say there's two sides to every story, but the, the, the side that we're hearing about is wrong. It, it's, mm. I, I'll try to think of a grown-up, clever legal word for it, but it's just wrong, essentially. Um, talking of wrong, Kieran, normally that's the word that follows most mentions of FIFA. But uh, for once, uh, there could well be a caveat coming up, but it seems like FIFA have done the right thing for once. Yes, FIFA have tripled the money for the 2023 Women's World Cup, which is taking place in Australia and New Zealand. The the competition, first of all, has been expanded from 24 to 32 national teams, which I think is encouraging. I think it's indicative of uh, an increase in the standard of the overall product. Um, so there's now going to be a hundred and fifty two million dollars worth of prize money funding for clubs i e you know the cost of you know, them the teams going to training camps pre tournament the cost of accommodation flights and so on, and also payments to clubs because the clubs are effectively losing their employees for a for a period of a month or so and that compares to six hundred and forty nine million for the twenty two World Cup that we've just had so it, it is substantially less um, but I think it is heading in the in the right direction um Jenny infantino who it has to be said has come in from a fair amount of stick from us, um, has said that for the 2026 and 2027 World Cups, the, the, the Men's World Cup in 26 and the Women's World Cup in 27, that he wants to see equality in mm. terms of the prize money. Um, but I think he's also acknowledged that outputs, i.e. the money paid out by FIFA, are to a large extent determined by inputs, which is the revenue generated through sponsorship deals and broadcasting. And he he has had a bit of a uh, an aim at broadcasters and sponsors, which, which yes. I find rather strange because they are the biggest contributors to FIFA and he's moaning at them that they're not giving him enough money. Um, so... I, I, but it's it's a tricky one because there is a case for saying that you should always try to match your inputs and outputs in every business. Um, but there's also a case for saying, uh, in in respect of the women's World Cup, this is the pinnacle of the the women's professional game. Um, it is also representing your country, which is the pinnacle for an individual player's career, and it does attract. A different audience. Yeah, there, there isn't. If, if you drew a, a Venn diagram of the people that watch women's football and the people that watch men's football, that, that there's there's not a complete overlap, and mm. and, and mm. that's that's right and proper. I think uh, anybody that's attended uh, women's games will, will, will know that to be the case. It's it's a, it's in my opinion a more inclusive, a more diverse audience, and so on. Um, but fair play to FIFA a for tripling the money. Um, I think. 
Gianni Infantino is trying to put the thumb screws on the broadcasters, but the broadcasters will say, well, the amount of money that we can afford to bid for the tournament is to a large extent determined by viewing figures. And because viewing figures means higher viewing figures equals higher advertising income, which allows us to pay more. So I think there's there's a lot of stakeholders involved here in terms of the, the future financing of the women's game. We also had an open letter going from Lewis Football Club the last week talking about the differences in prize money uh, between the women's FA Cup and the men's FA Cup. Yeah. I think Lewis yeah, got yeah, 46,000. Yeah. Uh, they, they played against Manchester United in the quarterfinal well, we spoke of to, the women's competition. We spoke to Sophia, didn't we, from Clapton Community FC about this very issue last year. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and uh, you know, Clapton FC, they lost money yeah. going to an FA Cup game. Yeah. Um, is there a case for equality? I, I think that there is a sort of case, but again, I think we've, we've got to be a little bit cautious here. Ultimately, again, from the perspe- perspective of the broadcasters, and you've, you've, they are the people that are handing over the checks, they will say, we will quite happily give far more money for the, for the deal if we think we're going to have much higher viewing figures. And if the viewing figures aren't there, we don't have the resources. Um, but the FA is in a position to say, well, perhaps there could be a little bit of a, a greater switch from the men's game to the women's game with a view to narrowing the gap. Um, and, and, and that should be the way forward. And, and ideally, as audiences continue to uh, increase and the women's game is a startup, the women's game realistically in this country has only been going for, you know, for a a handful of years yeah. as such in terms of the WSL and so on. And therefore it's coming from a completely different place, uh, but it's a growth industry. And uh, in order to encourage that growth further, I think the FA could perhaps be a wee bit more generous. But, Kieran, but, and I'm aware that somewhere out there listening to this is an American version of you chuckling away at the word but, but <laughs> there's always a but when it comes to FIFA because FIFA, I mean, quite rightly – uh, Infantino got a deal of credit for announcing that the uh, prize money for the 2027 Women's World Cup will equal that of the men's. But this is the same Gianni Infantino who invited Visit Saudi, the tourist board of the Saudi government, to sponsor the Women's World Cup in 2023 and then made a really petulant speech last week because the Australian FA and the New Zealand FA kicked up such a fuss that their offer to sponsorship has been withdrawn. And he he does the trembling bottom lip really well, but said last week, I don't I don't understand this. We tried to do a good thing. Um, I don't understand why the Australian FA are unhappy about this when the Australian government is investing lots of money in Saudi Arabia um, and all sorts of Saudi Arabian businesses. And the Australian FA had to point out that the FA and the government are very different because if they weren't, FIFA would sanction us because we're not allowed to have government inf- in- in- interference. So it's, <laughs> it's just he's, he's that baffled look he does. We, we thought it'd be a, a really good idea to ask a repressive regime where women don't have the same rights as men to sponsor the Women's World Cup. And then he can't understand why women in Australia and New Zealand are not happy about it. There's always a but with FIFA, Q, and that's the trouble. There, you, there is. You, you mentioned earlier, uh, Kieran, that um, new isn't always better. And the latest club who may be discovering that is another one we've discussed very recently. It's one of those EFL clubs that are in a bit of trouble. 
Yes, this is Huddersfield Town. Now, Huddersfield have put out effectively an announcement to say that they have a, they've appointed turnaround specialists, DA Capital, oh. to try to find a bidder for the club with a view to selling it uh, and handing over control from Dean Hoyle, who is who owns 25% of the club. He sold the other set 75% to a guy called, I think it's Paul Hodginson, Phil Hodginson, whose own businesses have, have not worked out. And, and that's always a risk um, in relation to any uh, football club. Um, and it said in the press release, you know, we don't want to go into administration. And that's fully understandable because if you go into administration by Thursday, then you're potentially going to get a 15-point penalty, which could be applied either this season or next season, depending upon the number of points you earn by the end of the year. Uh, So it could apply at the start of of 23-24. Now, the choices are that if uh, DA Capital managed to find somebody willing to buy the shares in Huddersfield Town Association Football Club, then the people that buy those shares inherit everything. So they inherit the stadium, they inherit the players' contracts, they inherit the money which is due on player sales, um, but they also inherit the liabilities. Now, we've not seen Huddersfield's 2022 accounts, so there is a degree of uncertainty here. But looking at their 21 accounts, they had £43 million of of debt. Um, So you'd you'd have to deal with that as well. If Huddersfield Town do go into administration, then the new owners would again buy the stadium. They would buy the play, they'd acquire the players' contracts and everything else, but they would not take over the debts. So it's it's effectively putting a price on that level of debt. Um, if Huddersfield get a fifteen point penalty this season, which I'm hoping they don't, I'm hoping they don't go into administration, um, then uh, then they are. Realistically, they're going to be relegated. And we've made reference to Reading. We've made reference to Wigan. You know, Potentially, you could end up with three clubs going down yeah. all on the back of a contributory factor of having a points deduction. Football is supposed to be played on grass. Yes, I agree, Kieran. But I'm, I'm at the stage where I'm going, I'm going through the club record books myself now to find three clubs in the Premier League who might need a points deduction before the end of the season. Um, I'm intrigued by DA Capital, Kieran, and the idea of turnaround specialists. Are they the same sort of people that would also act as administrators or are they specialists simply, you simply go to these people and say, we need new owners, can you find them? So they're like headhunters in a way, are they? Sort of. I mean, what what quite often happens in relation to uh, the corporate world is that the investigating firms will have a, a, a an insolvency arm as well. Right. They go in, they check the books, they try to put together a form of a sales brochure to persuade other people. Now, as far as um, Huddersfield are concerned, I, I know that there, there is uh, a potential offer coming here. There's a story from uh, a guy called Adam Williams. I, I know Adam quite well, who, who is a football journalist. He seems to think that um, there, there is a, a chance of, of a local group coming in um, 
But uh, if that isn't the case, then you, you do wonder how Huddersfield are going to, to pay the bills because they're no longer in receipt of parachute payments um, and their, their, their majority shareholder doesn't appear to have crashed, to, doesn't appear to have cashed to, to fund the business. Is there a risk, Kieran, so if, if a club turns to someone like DA Capital to look at the books and find a buyer? Is there a risk that the people at DA Capital say, actually, we've looked at the books and you need our administration branch? Is that Could that happen? That will be one of the considerations. Right, um, okay. They, they will say, this is what we think you should be able to sell the club for. Now, then, then Huddersfield will say, well, on that basis, do we satisfy the EFL rules in relation to 100% of football creditors being paid and 25% of everybody else being paid. Um, you know, that, would be, uh, that would be a consideration because when you exit administration, um, there is always the danger of a second points deduction if, if you can't afford to pay that. So, yes, all eventualities will have been considered in terms of this is what we think are realistic prices, these are the debts we're inheriting, and, and then you start to crunch to see just how bad it could be given the the three eventualities which is a sell Huddersfield town now new owner inherits all the debts b put the club into administration sell it as a prepack with enough money to pay off the creditors to just a one point deduction or nuclear situation worst possible situation is where club goes into administration exits administration and then gets a further points deduction it, it seems like an awful long time since that wonderful season they had in the Premier League doesn't it This episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by the AI-powered workspace Notion. What if you had access to tomorrow's tools today? In Notion, you do. It's the AI-powered workspace where any team can turn ideas into action. My career is sort of a bit like being a butterfly, and I'm always jumping from project to project. So therefore, Notion helps me from summarising meetings notes and automatically generating action items to getting answers to any question in seconds. If you can think it, you can make it. And Notion is for everyone, whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a freelance football finance lecturer. You can try Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash price of football. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash price of football and start turning ideas into action. That's notion.com slash price of football. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insights, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. We've been talking recently, Kieran, about two Uniteds, united by worried fans, amongst anything else. So what is the latest from Sheffield and Southend? Right. In terms of Sheffield United, first of all, congratulations getting to the 
FA Cup yeah. uh, semi-final. We uh, we look forward to seeing you at Wembley in the final. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm choosing to ignore that, Kieran. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm just going to let that go, especially in the light of the next news story we have coming up, <laughs> which is about my perfect club. Anyway, carry on. <laughs> um, so the Dozy, the, the Nigerian uh, businessman who has been linked with an acquisition, he has upped his game by appointing uh, Deloitte, the the big okay. accountancy firm, to effectively to audit his books um, with a view to increasing the degree of credibility that he has. Uh, the EFL have been asking additional questions, uh, requesting additional information with regards to his financial background. Remember, we did mention that he has had issues with regards to unpaid payments. So I think county, yeah, county court judgments mm. for non-payment of rent and so on, which is something you would not expect to be the case with a uh, successful billionaire. Um, so that appears to be nudging forwards and and then sort of some of the the great things about football and these these are even being reported you know he has he's liked a tweet um put out by Sheffield United in terms of them getting to the FA Cup semi-final and uh he's following a certain person who's connected to Sheffield United on Instagram what can we read from this um so th- there's there's clearly a uh, a campaign uh, that he he's he's adopting of trying to increase his links to the club through uh, other means than actually buying the shares. So so that's where we are in respect of Sheffield United. Now in respect of Southend United, um, our our very good friend Ron Martin, mm. uh, the man who has I think it's fair to say uh, upset <laughs> the uh, Southend United fan base. A tad uh, has formally said that the club is up for sale. Oh, okay. Um, he is using an organisation called General Sports Worldwide. Now, General Sports Worldwide t- is, uh, is is controlled by Andy Appleby, who is has been working in the world of football for many years. He used to be the owner of Derby. I think he I think he might have been the guy that sold Derby County to Mel Morris, mm. um, and also Jez Moxie. Now, Jez Moxie has been uh, an executive with the likes of Stoke, Wolves, Norwich, Burton Albion, and so on. Um, but he's also a director of the EFL, and and this is where I I find myself slightly uncomfortable. Now, I. I, I for, for, fully admit that Southend United is not part of the EFL these days, you know, since being relegated to the National League. But why is a director of the EFL involved in selling a former member of the EFL? Mm, and mm. would he also be involved in, because he says that effectively a general sports worldwide, it sees itself as an estate agent for football clubs and it's, its job is to is to sift through the tyre kickers and the lunatics and the... Uh, you know the naysayers who who do connected do get connected with potential bids. Um, I, I think there is a case for saying that if if we were talking about an EFL club, I personally would feel very uncomfortable about a director of the EFL who potentially has access, therefore, to information held by the EFL being involved in in the sale. Um, so I think that yeah, there's a potential conflict of interest there, um, and he is, uh, I believe, still involved with 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 another club. Um, so, 
you know, to, there's there's a case for saying surely uh, EFL directors should be a bit like Caesar's wife. If you're if you're going to be involved in the industry at that level, then there has to be a case for uh, s- severing your involvement in in other businesses to to which you might have historically been associated. Well, <clears throat> Trevor, if you're listening. And we know you are. Give Kieran a call. We'd love to hear your this. Uh, online four. We have Trevor from the EFL. Um, Southend fans won't have, won't have heard the the last bit of that because they would have been out celebrating the minute you said Ron Martin has formally said the, the club is up for sale. Um, it says here, Kieran. I don't know why on a a, a news pod about football finances, but it says here uh, Brighton's latest accounts are out. I imagine they were. Uh, came in a folder made of vegan leather embossed with organic gold <laughs> written in saffron ink and probably went, everything's brilliant, not like the rest of you losers. So can we move on to the next story? Or is there anything you need to add to that? Is there anything in there about the miracle that you didn't get drawn against Sheffield United? You actually, you actually got a Premier League club to play in the semi-final. Anyway, anyway anything in that story, Kieran? Anything? anything? Um. Record revenues, record profits, record player sales, uh, all on uh, having the second lowest wage bill in the Premier League. Um, apart from that, nothing to report. I'm delighted for you, Kieran. Um, <laughs> Chelsea fans uh, could be uh, moving home, Kieran. Yes, um, it looks as if Todd Bowley is considering uh, doing one of two things in relation to uh, Chelsea. Uh, It could be building a new stadium on the current uh, land print that Chelsea have. There has been talk about moving the stadium or moving the pitch 90 degrees uh, because I think Chelsea potentially have access to buying some land, which would mean that the the main stand would, would have to take it have to be effectively relocated uh, by a quarter. Um, and there have been also talks about buying another plot of land and utilising that. Uh, in terms of the cost, I think if it was £1 billion, that would be a bargain. It's more likely to be closer to £2 billion. Uh, if Chelsea are going to aim for a stadium similar in size to that of Spurs, Arsenal, West Ham. And, and of course, you know, Chelsea could easily uh, fill a 60,000 stadium yeah. um, on, on a regular basis. So that is the, the latest talk. And the reason for that is if you take a look at Chelsea's accounts, in terms of ticket sales, because Stamford Bridge is 41,000, it, it generates match day income, and, and these figures are sort of from the pre-COVID account, so therefore they're not distorted by COVID. Match day income was £67 million. Now, you've got Manchester United at 110 We've got Spurs, who could easily get to 110 Arsenal, if they qualify for the Champions League, they could get 110 as well. So that would mean if, if Chelsea stay where they are, then they're going to start each season on minus 30 to 40 million pounds in respect of the other uh, major clubs in in the big six. And with a likely change, I think it it is expected that the Premier League will adopt 
new financial rules to replace financial fair play to, to bring themselves broadly in line with what we have at UEFA. So therefore, some form of wage control. And if that wage control is linked to income, if you start off with £40 million worth less of uh, matchday income, then let's say it's 70%, you've, you've automatically got a, a 30, 30 million pound uh, differential when it comes through to wages so so that's that's a quite a bit of catch up for Chelsea yeah, they're trying to attract better players uh, just like all clubs are but if they are limited in what they can pay out in wages due to the size of the stadium then this is one area that they need to address um and, and as well as being saying something nice about uh Jenny Anfantino and, and I, I think I, I I think must be living living an out of body experience here. I've also got to say something nice about Ken Bates, uh, in the sense that oh. that he set up the Chelsea. You know, he was involved yeah. with the creation of the Chelsea pitch owners, which, for people not familiar with the story, effectively divided the pitch into one yard squares, or it could be one meter. I'm not sure whether it was pre decimal or not, um, and. Every one of those shares is owned by somebody different because you're not allowed. I don't think you're allowed to own more than ten shares in Chelsea yeah. pitch owners, or uh, you're not allowed to have more than ten votes. So there are there are many many shares in Chelsea pitch owners, and Chelsea pitch owners have ownership of the Chelsea Football Club name, I think, but they certainly have ownership of uh, a lot of the intellectual property and effectively the pitch itself. So this is to prevent somebody coming in to Chelsea saying, blimey O'Reilly, this is this is a piece of real estate that is worth an absolute yeah. fortune if it was converted into offices or flats. So it, it was done from a protectionist point of view. Um, and, and it was a, a bit of foresight by Ken Bates, for which I think he deserves a lot of credit. And, and I've said it. Um, so uh, that, I think the approval of Chelsea pitch owners would be required as well. So I think a persuasive case by the Todd Bowley group would therefore be required. Uh, everything I've read about Ken Bates, Kieran, would indicate it definitely will be yards. I don't think Ken, <laughs> I don't think Ken Bates would have gone gone along with his fancy foreign measurements. Uh, talking of real estate, Kieran, is there any indication of where Chelsea are looking? Because if they're looking round the corner in terms of cost and availability, that's going to be difficult, isn't it? Yeah, I, th- I think there was some talk about Earl's Court, but I, I, I don't I don't know enough about London uh, to to know whether it's big enough or whether it would be appropriate. Um, I think in an ideal world, they would still want to be where they are. Uh, and the problem that they've got is, you, you say, it's it's a very expensive area. And therefore, those people who are living in uh you know, in apartments, in in private accommodation, in office accommodation, they tend to be very wealthy people. And the last thing that those very wealthy people want is uh, a two or three year uh, building project taking place. And then you've got issues of could there be light, light pollution uh, issues to have to deal with. These people tend to have very expensive lawyers who will be putting up objections. So I think this could be a, a really tough uh, challenge for the Chelsea owners. Uh, we still have a couple of stories, Kieran, before our interview. So let's, I think, probably try and rattle through them a little bit. Uh, for some reason, nothing bemuses and amuses football fans more than a match being abandoned, as we saw at the weekend. Any financial implications for Rotherham 
and Cardiff, because like the rest of the nation, I, I thought it was fantastic seeing a referee trying to bounce a ball in a three foot, basically in the shallow end of the, yes. of the ground, <laughs> while angry Cardiff fans were demanding that they be given the game. So um, it, it's so rare to see it in modern football. It, it does beg the question of whether there will be some financial ramifications. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure on this one. I don't know whether uh, Rotherham will have to reimburse Cardiff for their travel expenses. Um, but that's that's about as far as it's likely to go. Because the match lasted more than 45 minutes, I don't think you're entitled to a refund as a fan, no. although it could be given on a discretionary basis. Clearly, if you're a season ticket holder at Rotherham, that should not be a problem for you. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's wonderful to see see those huge brooms as well. And you've got, you've got yeah. people from Cardiff saying... Well, they're doing an absolutely useless job, and you've got the people from Rotherham. Well, we're doing as well as we can, you know, for, sort of, from from a dinghy. Yeah, you you, tr- you try sweeping with from a dinghy. It's not easy at all. Um, but it's <laughs> there, was, uh, there was one brilliant photograph on social media of a, a steward leaning on his broom, which was then matched <laughs> by Rotherham fans photographing the same steward saying he's he's doing that because he's just exhausted himself. <laughs> a photograph of him. <laughs> I mean, Kira, I don't see how Rotherham uh, can be blamed uh, financially for a deluge that was so bad. At one stage, it looked like the animals were going to be entering the stadium two by two. So it, it, it seems a bit unfair to say, well, they've got to reimburse Cardiff for the for the travel. Yes, I think what what's got to be the case is have Rotherham taken all appropriate steps to try to ensure that the match was able to continue. By the looks of it, they did, and therefore there should be no further repercussions. But uh, without seeing the minutiae of the EFL handbook, and I must confess, uh, because we've had so many stories, my handbook is never far away, but I've not had a chance to thumb through it this morning. Yeah. The way you say thumb through it, Kieran, it all sounds so sinister. I don't know why. Uh, Kieran Louis-Dreyfus, Kieran, is only young, but he already seems like an old friend. Yes, yeah, but I, by gum, I'd like to be a millionaire at his age, or billionaire at his age, or a millionaire. I'd be happy to be a millionaire. I'm, I'm not any, any age, Kieran. <laughs> yes. Um, he he acquired Sunderland from Stuart Donald um, a year or two ago, um, and he has increased his investment, as has uh, one Satori. I think the big issue here is that Stuart Donald has reduced his investment in Sunderland to 9%. And if you own less than 10% in a club, it does mean that you are effectively free to invest in other clubs. So Stuart Donald will have received some money from the sale of his shares. There'll be no money going to Sunderland itself. Um, Kirill Louis-Dreyfus did originally have 51%. And that's that's the key number, because once you own 51% of the shares, especially as they're all equal voting shares, it's not like Manchester United and the Glazers. Once you own 51% of the shares, that means that you have control over the votes. You can choose the directors, you can choose the manager, you have a, uh, you have a lot of say over uh, what's happening on a day-to-day basis. Um, so it, it looks as if Stuart Donald is cashing out, he said that he's kept his 9% because he loves Sunderland. <laughs> um, and uh, for anybody that uh, has watched Sunderland Till I Die, which I, if you've not, I thoroughly recommend as a, as a piece of uh, popcorn munching theatre. It's it's a wonderful experience. Um, he, he's, a, he's a different type of owner. I, I don't think he's evil. Uh, I 
not sure that his decision making is necessarily <laughs> great. Uh, and I'm trying here to uh, to uh, to avoid uh, another long email from his chum Charlie Methan with regards to this. Um, but in my view, he's the reason why he's decided to hold on to some of his shares is that should Sunderland be promoted to the Premier League, and they're having a pretty decent season, um, the value of those shares will go up substantially, and therefore he could sell out his final 9% and get a much higher fee. So I'm, I'm, I, when, when it, sometimes you do things for love, sometimes you do things for money. Uh, Stuart Donald is claiming he's holding on his 9% for love, but I'm not convinced of that myself. I'm just laughing at the idea, Kieran, that Stuart Donald's agent says to him, mate, Stuart, this show we're doing, we need a good quote for the poster. (laughs) So far, the best we can come up with is, I don't think he's evil, Kieran Maguire. (laughs) 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 Kieran, you know, we've already mentioned the 2026 World Cup final. Um, And this last story, I think it's only only March – this is this is definitely a contender for my favourite story of the year. You know how much I hate spring and summer. I, yesterday I was getting quite miserable at the idea that sunshine and summer was coming, but this story actually put, ironically put a little spring in my step. Yes, um, the the twenty twenty six World Cup final was due to take place in Los Angeles at the SoFi Stadium. <laughs> um, but uh, somebody from FIFA has popped down there with a, a very long measuring tape and go, sorry, mate, can't do this. The ground's too narrow. And so they're going to have to go and find somewhere else. Um, and, and this stadium, I, I think, by, by all accounts, cost an absolute fortune to put together. You know, it, it wasn't designed for soccer. Uh, you know, it, it's a multifunction stadium uh, aimed at NFL and so on. Um, but where the... 2026 World Cup is going to take place is uh, probably going to have to be somewhere else. So, uh, so, so hats off, hats off to Jobsworths everywhere who have who have pointed this out uh, to FIFA. And at least at least we know uh, well in advance um, because uh, I'm I'm hoping to do that World Cup um, and with some of my mates. Uh, and I think we uh, we have to go and make sure we well not we've got a ticket for the final anyway. The chances are fairly remote, uh, but uh, we're not going to be booking into LA for the final day. It, it's just, <laughs> there may be other stadium in, in LA, Kieran. Who knows? But I just love the idea of the when the stadium is open, the general manager saying to the architect, "Should I be able to touch both touch lines at the same time?" <laughs> As it seems, it just seems a little bit too. <laughs> just also the fact that FIFA have got somebody whose job it is to say, just go and check it's wide enough for the World Cup fight. It must be, boss. Gianni, come on now. <laughs> let's not, let's, I know we waste money flying all over the world for junkets. Let's not send me to Los Angeles to measure the pitch and, and Gianni will be back home in Switzerland now again. I told you. I told you. That's why I'm the uncontested elected head of FIFA forever. Um, last year, Kieran, we spoke to Gareth Coates from the Middlesex Schools Football Association about some of the difficulties uh, of football at the lowest of grassroots level. Um, and he asked us uh, to talk to him again this week just to catch up with what's been happening uh, in his life and in the life of Middlesex Schools Football Association. Now, Gareth, the last time we spoke, you told us you were planning to step down from your role. So what happened? Um. 
the simple answer is I couldn't find anyone to replace me. Oh, really? um, <laughs> I didn't want to. Uh, I didn't want to walk away mm. and leave Middlesex Schools FA in the lurch. And at the time, I was planning to step away last season. Um, there was a project going on with the English Schools FA around bringing in a standard code of rules for competitions at county level and upwards, which I was asked to be a part of. Hmm. And I wanted to try and see that through if I possibly could. Um, so I did say I would give it another year. Um, I really am stepping down at the end of this season because we've we've got somebody in place now uh, who I'm starting to train up and, and prepare a handover to. But um, it, it was important to me that after all the work we'd done to build Middlesex Schools FA back up, especially after the pandemic, that it didn't just fall down for the lack of uh, somebody to to deal with the correspondence and the paperwork. Uh, well, it's nice to know you're irreplaceable. If Michael McIntyre became available, I'd be dropped like a hot brick from this pod. Um, I, I'm, I'm intrigued to hear you talk about the continuance of Middlesex Schools FA because that last time we spoke, Kieran and I were united in our admiration for your commitment to and passion for representative inter-county school football but something has changed since then, hasn't it? Yes, um, we have found we, we've reached the conclusion very sadly that inter-county representative football is not sustainable in Middlesex. Um, I did some spreadsheet work um, and I calculated that eighty-nine percent of our primary income and our primary income is affiliation and cup entry fees from schools who play in our inter-schools cups um, has been spent this season on the rep teams, which doesn't leave a lot left to pay for the 13 cup finals we need to stage um, and the medals associated with those cups and so on and so forth. Um, And the other major issue that we have is that we simply don't have the volunteers Mm. to make sure that those... um, those teams are run as professionally as we would like. So the burden falls on myself and on my representative football coordinator, who is a parent. She's a volunteer. She's done a fantastic job. But at times this season in particular, it's been like nailing jelly to a wall. Hmm. So as a management committee, we have reluctantly concluded that the, the best thing to do would be to stop fielding county teams and to focus our efforts on our inter-school, our inter-school cups and other competitions and provide football for a much broader um, group of, of children than would be the case if we focused on the elite. Are you the only county to make this decision, Gareth? We are the only one that has made this decision this season and has announced it so publicly. Um, but... There are eight of the 44 counties affiliated to English Schools FA who don't field representative teams, and two of those are in the southeast region that we compete in, uh, specifically uh, Buckinghamshire and Cambridgeshire. But there are others dotted around the country. And after we made the announcement on our website and on our, our Twitter feed, um, we did hear from other counties saying that they feared that they weren't a million miles away from the point that we've reached. To give you an example, uh, Bedfordshire Schools FA Hmm. did some crowdfunding to try and raise uh, £1,500 for new playing kit, and um, they've raised less than 400 So the problem that all schools FAs have at county level 
is that if they don't get the support, and it's not just financial, as I say, but if, if people don't support these teams, they cannot function. And unfortunately, that's where we're at um, in Middlesex. You say, Gareth, that it's not it's not just financial. It occurs to me, with all due respect, I mean, I, I know 13 sets of medals is quite expensive, but in, in the scheme of things, in comparison to the money there is in the game, it, it doesn't strike me that it would need that much money to continue. So what sort of funds would it have taken for you to continue? And did you look to source them from outside, from sponsorship, for example, rather than, say, uh, parents' fees or whatever? We we would dearly love um, to go and get sponsors, but there mm. are a couple of fairly major challenges uh, in that respect. One is um, that the economy's in the toilet and um, <laughs> everybody's struggling. Yeah. Um, and uh, potential sponsors want a return on their investment. And between them, our five teams this season have only played 23 matches mm. because of the way rep football is structured. Um, unless you are extremely successful, you only play a small number of games because you, you play in your regional league and that starts with a group stage and then goes into semi-finals and a final. And then you have the National Cup, um, which is like any cup, um, lose and you're out. And unfortunately, two of the three rep teams that we entered into the National Cups this season were eliminated at the first stage. So... It's very difficult for us to justify to a sponsor why they should put money into these teams because we can't guarantee them a specific level of exposure. Right. And the other problem that we have, um, and this goes far beyond the financial, is um, that we simply don't have the volunteers to go out and get sponsorship. Oh, okay. as, a, as an example, um, I actually live 200 miles from Middlesex. Right. I moved away seven years ago. Yeah. I live just outside Liverpool. Um, but I keep doing this because I want the activities of the school's FA, its 90-year history, to continue, and because I love the game of football. And, um, you know, the 13 Cups we run are managed by teachers mm. who are doing that around their day jobs. They don't have time to to go on, knock on the door of Company X and say, we've got these teams, can you sponsor us, please? Now, some of our counterparts in other counties um, – don't have that problem they they do have sponsorship um but it isn't enough on its own to cover the costs of running these teams mm. um you have to bear in mind that that we run we have to hire the venues we have to pay the match officials we have to provide uh catering for the players after the game and so on and so forth and some counties are quite successful and they generate you know maybe four figures a year in sponsorship mm. but if they're spending five figures on running their teams, mm. um, then um, all that's doing is is offsetting that cost, and and they have to find the money from somewhere else, and that's what we've been doing for a long time. In the unlikely event, Gareth, that I was able to write out a blank check, what sort of figure would you be looking at for you to be able to continue to do this? Well, it's very difficult to say because you don't know how successful any given age group is going to be. Oh, okay. But um, but what I would say is that if there was a guaranteed £10,000 a season in funding, our rep teams could continue in the way that they have. Now, we have run on the proverbial shoestring for a long time, and there are other counties that do a lot more than we do. 
um, but they spend a lot more money to do it. So if you look mm. at the Kent Schools FA, which is a charity, um, and you look at the figures there, they've spent, but the money they generate in, re- in return to cover that, that's how they do it. Um, and they they do put things on outside the traditional school's football calendar, which I presume parents are contributing towards, and that helps pay for it. Whereas we've taken the very traditional position in Middlesex that playing for your county is an honour and it shouldn't cost you anything. Mm. Um, so we've never asked parents for a penny. Um, I don't know how common that model is in our counterparts around the country anymore because of the way the game has changed. But um, but it's what we've always tried to do in Middlesex. We've tried to make playing for your county the pinnacle of your school's football career and therefore not put a cost on it. Mm. Uh, interesting to hear you say that uh, Kent Schools FA are a charity, Gareth. Is that unusual then? Is Middlesex not a charity? Um, we're not. We're an unincorporated association Okay. because we are so small uh, um, in okay. terms of finances um that um it it just isn't worth the um the hoops that you have to jump through um kent's yeah. income is 14 times higher than ours oh wow okay. but their expenditure is also um significantly higher than ours and you know my colleagues in kent um it, it's a much bigger county than us they they are very good at what they do and and they have a very strong culture of representative football not just at county level but at district level as well. And they run a huge number of competitions. So I have massive respect for for my friends in Kent. Um, but they they have a, a bigger base from which to work than we do. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to ask this next question in two parts, Gareth, because, I mean, back in the day uh, when Kieran and I were growing up, schoolboy football would feel Wembley. Um, is there perhaps just not the interest... They used to be in schools football now. And is that the second part of the question? Is that probably because schoolboy football is no longer one of the routes to a professional career the way it could be when kids like Terry Venables and, and Bobby Charlton were filling Wembley? Well, I'll answer the second part of that question first, Kevin. Yeah. It is still possible to go from the national schoolboys team to a professional contract. Uh, Chris Smalling did it not so long ago. Um, And again, he's a boy from Kent and he went from playing for Kent Schools FA and Maidstone United. And and now I think he's playing in Syria for Roma. So it can be done. Um, But the problem that you have these days, um, to go back to the first part of your question, is that it's a lot easier to watch a lot more football than it used to be. And Mm. there are so many more competitions now. There are so many more games. I mean, if you, if you look at the Champions League compared to the old European Cup, if you look at, um, how many games are televised these days compared to the fact that when the schoolboy internationals were at Wembley, you got the FA Cup final and the the home international championship. And that was about it in most seasons. Um, you know, when when the Premier League has become this all-encompassing um, product, this almost a branch of show business, then it, it does absolutely um, dilute the interest in things like um, the England Schools FA national teams. I mean, you talk about them filling Wembley. Um, I, I looked it up 
the England versus Scotland game last season was played at Spennymoor Town wow. and attracted a crowd just of just over a thousand. Wow. So it's absolutely true that there is less interest in schools representative football than there used to be. But that is equally true of lots of the uh, the smaller forms of the game, if you like. The, I mean, you mentioned Chris Smalling. The, the, the problem is, I, mean, I, don't, I don't know how old Chris Smalling is, but he must be closer to 30 than to 20. And the, the thing is that every, every one of the 92 professional clubs will have found out, for the most part, about the good kids in their area. Uh, before they reach the level you're talking about. what It must be even more frustrating for you, Gareth, because since the white paper, all of us have been talking about the importance of grassroots football and you're losing a level of important football for the want of £10,000. I mean, that's galling, isn't it? It's, it's frustrating um, and it is painful because this is an aspect of schools football that, that dates back... Um, nearly 100 years Um, but it's a pragmatic decision uh, from our point of view we want to safeguard the county cups that we run we're very proud in Middlesex that we have an equal offer for boys and girls from under 13 right the way through to sixth form Um, you know there's no gap there there is there is a boys cup and a girls cup at every age group um, from under 13 up to upper sixth form in our county that's something we've done a lot of work on um and that is i think worth protecting and that's a different form of grassroots football it it gets to more children um you know we we have 74 schools in membership this season we we hope to grow that because that's nowhere near all the schools in our eight boroughs i think it's about a third if we can if we can grow that and we can get more kids playing and I, i'm not just talking boys i'm talking girls as well then when we can do that by eliminating a cost for what is nominally an elite level team that impacts on maybe 150 kids a season once we've selected the squads from the trials then i think that's a price worth paying in the longer term it, it is sad it is painful. It's not something that we wanted to do, but we want to make sure that the Middlesex Schools FA is still here in another 90 years and, and is offering as many kids as possible the opportunity to play football. Which is absolutely right, but it still leaves 150 kids who are decent footballers at a grassroots level with a, a step missing, if you like. I'm, I'm pleased to hear you talk about girls as well, Gareth, because... This is what's confusing me the most about what you're telling me because the FA and Barclays, uh, neither of whom are short of a few bob, are currently running a, a TV campaign talking about ensuring that all girls get access to schools football, which is and it's a shameful disgrace that they don't currently. But now you're telling us that there's a whole level of, of school child football that's in danger of disappearing altogether. It doesn't make sense to me, Gareth. Well... I think the FA and Barclays would look at our competition model and and say that that is what they're trying to promote um, because representative football um, is important. It it is a stepping stone, um, not just into the professional game, but into things like college scholarships in the USA, 
um, and to all sorts of opportunities for young people. Well, also, so I don't want to downplay its importance. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Gareth, as well, but it's not just opportunity. It's fitness, it's health, it's it's social, it's mixing with all sorts of other people. It's 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 important of itself. It's not just important as a stepping stone. It's just important for these kids full stop. No, it is. It absolutely is. And, and that's why... Um, when we announced we were mothballing the representative teams, it, it caught um, the imagination of the football public. Um, but the FA are not interested in representative football unless it's at the very, very top level. Right. And it has three lions on the shirt. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think that's a little bit short-sighted. Um, for, for the girls' representative teams in particular, we have massive problems just getting the games on. Yeah. Because the FA has created an elite player pathway for girls teams where there is a network of regional talent clubs who are FA licensed and play in specific competitions. And the only time those regional talent clubs are obliged to release girls for their counties is on the second Saturday of every month. Mm. And in order to get that release, um, we have to call the players up at least 14 days beforehand. Um, which is an extra additional um, administrative burden for our volunteers to bear. Um, because, you know, if they've got a day job and they send the email uh, a day late and then the club says, well, no, you, you're inside the 14 days, we're going to keep girl X right. and we're going to play and you can't have her, then that then weakens the, the county team um, who are trying to select the player. I'm not saying that that happens as a matter of routine, um, but I know it does happen. And I know that even when players are called up in accordance with the procedures, they are occasionally encouraged not to answer the call and, and to, to make themselves unavailable for their counties. So it it's a real struggle um, just to get the teams on the pitch at times. And that's because, um, with girls football in particular, uh, the FA is very, very keen um, to have a pathway that leads to their teams rather than to schools' teams, and I can understand that. And they've mm. th they've done some fantastic work in girls' football and women's football, and the the success of the Lionesses at the Euros last year is a testament to that. But uh, Chloe Kelly, who uh, who scored the winning goal in the final, is a former Middlesex schools representative player. Mm. Mm. she wasn't in the rtc she she was uh initially she was in in our reps rights and and she progressed into the elite pathway through that uh, yeah well I, I mean that was one of the defining moments of football for me last season her disappearing at the end uh, when she, they were trying to interview her and she disappeared into the throng of other girls still with the microphone in her hand um uh, gareth i can sense I, the frustration and disappointment in your voice. Football at, at grassroots level relies on people like you, and it's losing people like you. I, I, I don't want to end an, an interview on this downbeat note. Is there anything you can tell me? Is there any optimistic note you can leave us on? Is there any good news to look forward to? The, the good news is that if we step away from that top level, um, schools football the actual grassroots level at the schools level is doing quite well. Oh, um, and I'm not just talking about locally, I'm talking about nationally. Um, you know, 
the English Schools FA runs an annual campaign called uh, Schools Football Week. And they got hundreds of thousands of kids playing during Schools Football Week. They they are doing the best that they can. Um, and, you know, we've got record numbers of girls teams playing in our Cups. We've got, as I say, we've got 74 schools affiliated in Middlesex, which is the highest number it's been um, since I've got involved with the Schools FA. And we want to grow that. And so, yes, it's very sad that a part of football's history is under threat. But if you strip that back and you take it back to the real grassroots, that that 12-year-old kid who gets called up for a school team for a county cup game because his PE teachers spotted him in a lesson, then the picture's not so bleak. Mm. And that's why we're trying to be pragmatic and, and we are making tough decisions in Middlesex um, so that we can give that that 12-year-old boy, that 12-year-old girl more opportunities to play so that we can continue to fund the the county round of the Pokemon Cup, which is something that the English Schools FA runs nationally for primary schools. It's, you know, the game in schools is not under threat per se. It needs help. It absolutely does. Um, there needs to be a conversation nationally, collectively, about whether we want this tradition of um, representative football to continue. Um, and if we do, how that is funded, um, because the costs are eye-watering. Um, as an example, it costs four times as much to enter the Middlesex under-14 boys into the ESFA National Cup than it would for Manchester City to enter the FA Challenge Cup. And that's something that needs to be looked at. But when you break it down and you get to the to the grass to the to the genuine grassroots, those kids playing for their school after after school, um, and those teachers giving up their time, then there is still an ecosystem there. And I think it is in reasonable health. It does need more support, it does need more help. Um, but it is not going away. There are still teachers willing to put teams out on the pitch on a Tuesday afternoon at 3.15, and, and that's precious, and long may that continue. The challenge that we have is on those Saturday mornings when we're trying to take a Middlesex team to Kent or Sussex or Surrey, and those challenges aren't unique to us. So we are focusing we're trying to focus on the bigger picture and to protect the whole ecosystem of schools football rather than this this one precious bit at the top of the pyramid. That is that is a more optimistic note to finish on, Gareth. Thank you. And in fact, I can't think of a better note to finish on than the Pokemon Cup, which sounds fantastic, I have to say. Gareth, it's a pleasure talking to you. I can't imagine that you won't be involved in football shortly again at some level or another so with any luck we'll talk to you about that this time next year as well all the best to you mate thanks kevin kira notwithstanding the economics and again for the sake of eight thousand quid those kids could be having an experience that they'll enjoy for the rest of their life it, it just proves how reliant football is at the grassroots level on those unpaid volunteers and teachers, doesn't it? 
you're absolutely right. You know, we we spoke about some of the the other people in football, and is it do they do it for love or money? Well, at this level, it is for love. It is for the that egalitarian viewpoint of wanting to see young kids progress to give them experiences which they wouldn't give elsewhere. And I, th- I think grassroots football in this country is is one of our wonderful idiosyncrasies and strengths and it has to be supported uh, as much as we can as well that that ties into the sort of the earlier discussion we had with regards to what might happen to football foundation money if the premier league decides to say well if we're giving more money to the efl we've got to we can either take less money ourselves or we could perhaps look at some of our other outgoings yeah, speaking of grassroots, I probably should have mentioned earlier, I have um, tree pollen hay fever, which uh, started for the first time this morning, which is yet another reason why I hate this time of year and everybody who likes it, basically. Um, and on that cheery note, thank you to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod, please go to patreon.com slash priceoffootball. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. I'd like to thank Kieran Maguire for being mature enough not to mention Roy Hodgson, which was great because this is already a long pod. It would have been twice as long if he had done. Uh, in the meantime, I shall hand you over to the said Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Uh, well, as always, thank you to everybody who supports us via Patreon. It's it's very kind and uh, we are hugely appreciative of it. There are a variety of ways in which you can support the show. And one of them is to go on to your app, which you use to download uh, download your podcasts and to give us a review. It, it helps us in the charts. It helps us with the Apple algorithms. It gives us a bit more credibility um, when we are asking for, for guests. By all accounts, uh, according to Producer Guy, it doesn't matter what you say. So you could even say you would rather have the show presented by Sepp Blatter <laughs> and Brett Anderson of Swade, who gave a magnificent performance at Brighton Dome the other night, and it wouldn't make a blind bit of difference to us. Oh, yeah, I, I believe Sepp Blatter sent um, Roy Hodgson a, a tweet. Congratulated, Dan. I thought I'd get through the whole pod without mentioning that. Bye, everybody. Bye. The price of football. I'm for the